Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Lizzie Porter, an award-winning journalist and senior correspondent for Iraqi Oil Report, who's logged on from Turkey to chat to us today about a feature she wrote about Syria for our October issue. In her feature, Lizzie looks at the picture for Syria and Syrians today, at how the Arab world has, over the past few years, been re-embracing Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, at the influence of countries such as Turkey and Russia on Syria's future, and at what all of this means for the Syrian people. Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, coming on to chat about this this story that actually we've been um, talking about together since the spring, actually. And I'd love to get into kind of why this uh, was the angle that we took, because this is a deeply reported piece that you worked on. It covers both the kind of human stories of Syrians displaced by conflict and the geopolitical story of Syria's place in the world. So could you start by telling us why we brought those things together in this piece? You're right. We've, we've been talking about this piece for a long time um, since the earthquakes happened in Turkey and Syria in February. Um, I was very conscious that Syria had kind of fallen off the global conscience. I used to report on Syria a lot uh, before I moved to reporting on Iraq more full time. And I really felt that there had been a significant decrease in media coverage. Also in in Western politics, it was just no longer one of the top issues that is being discussed by politicians, by governments in the West. There was a time when the Arab Spring started in 2011 and then when ISIS, and of course Syria was one of uh, ISIS's strongholds, when ISIS became a problem that the world realised affected the world, not just countries in the Middle East, started to care about. Um, There was significant coverage of Syria, but really in the past three to five years, it's become much less of of a a global issue um, reflected in the, the loss of media coverage around it. And so when the earthquake happened, I felt that the destruction caused by the earthquake is colossal. And it was a an event that was big enough on a world stage to remind, as to act as a reminder to everyone um, that that the Syrian conflict has still been going on, coming into its thirteenth year. And and also the earthquake acted as a kind of 
catalyst to speed up what was already uh, a process of reintegration, rapprochement, normalization between Arab countries and Bashar al-Assad's government in Damascus. Uh, Syria at the moment is divided in terms of governance between Western-backed Kurdish groups in the northeast, Syrian opposition groups in uh, the northwest, and most of the country is now backed by Assad, who of course is backed by Russia and Iran. The Arab countries had started normalizing with Assad, but the earthquake was a kind of very material way in which they could show, hey, we're going to be talking to Assad as well as talking to the opposition. We're going to be talking to Assad. We're going to go meet him. We're going to go and we're going to be sending aid to government uh, Syrian regime controlled areas of Syria as well as opposition controlled areas of Syria. So it was quite a material way in which we could see that yeah, the, the Arab countries were willing to work with Assad again. And after that, of course, uh, in over the spring and early summer, Assad was welcomed back into Arab League meetings. He has been invited to the uh, COP28 summit in the United Arab Emirates in November. So, yeah, there is regional diplomacy going on that was shown and emphasised by the earthquake. I'd love to kind of come back to some of those geopolitical dynamics because it is fascinating. And actually, so we're talking on, on Friday, the 22nd of September, and I'd love to come back later to talk about a visit yesterday that Assad made to China. But let's pause for a minute on that moment of the earthquake. People will remember, I think, some of the devastating footage that came out and reporting that came out immediately after what was actually a, um, a series of earthquakes. Um and you have reported on some of that in your piece, seen some of that firsthand and spoken to people who've, who've experienced um, that great tragedy, really. So can you tell us a, a bit about the impact of those those earthquakes on uh, on Syrians who are living in, in, in Turkey and, and Syria and the stories that they told you? So, yeah, the earthquake happened February 6th. I remember, well, I was in Baghdad when that happened and I actually felt it in Baghdad. So that's hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away. It's quite difficult to describe the extent of the destruction. And I I didn't get to go down there until it was June when I went reporting there. So I went down a period of a few months afterwards. Even then, I mean, Antakya, which was one of the places in Turkey worst affected by the earthquake, so the city center doesn't really exist anymore. It's shells of buildings that need to be knocked down or knocked down buildings. The rubble has been placed in other areas. The, uh, they are, they as in rubble collectors, security forces are present in the city, um, but it's not completely encircled, um, sort of local police and things. Rubble collectors are still working on clearing the rubble and any shops and things that have reopened are in containers. People are living in containers or tents and I spoke to one Syrian man who'd just reopened his pastry shop. It was a couple of weeks before. So he'd been, you know, with nothing for weeks. And he said he was living in, in his house. His house was, because it was a little bit further out of the city, his house has got huge cracks in the walls, but he has nowhere else to go. Um, and despite that, because of the economic challenges Turkey is facing, despite his living in an earthquake-damaged house, his landlord is asking for a big rise in in. Um, his rent payments 
even though it's a very, very damaged uh, property. And he's, you know, a lucky one that his family survived. Other people I spoke to, Turks and Syrians, Antakya is a very interesting place because it's a real mix of Syrians, Turks, um, a lot of the people there are Alevis, so they follow the same religion that the Alawites in Syria follow, or similar uh, practices. Um, they're not Sunni Muslims like most Turks. Um, there's Kurds, there's, uh, there's a history of Armenians there, Jews. Some Jew- some of, the, of Turkey's last remaining Jews were killed in the earthquake. So it's a very diverse place. Um, and, I mean, I spoke to dozens of people and and one man you know just started crying because his his daughter and and his wife had been killed and he was sleeping in a taxi it's i mean the stories are horrible now um i've been speaking to sources um who say that there are houses being rebuilt on the outskirts of the city for uh Turks, but Syrians who have been displaced by the earthquake went to other cities. They're not sure where they're going to go because they have sort of restrictions on their movement within Turkey and they aren't sure where they're going to go. People remain displaced within Syria as well. The thing you've got to remember about the areas of Syria that were hit is a lot of them are in areas controlled by the opposition and getting materials to them is very difficult because cross-border deliveries of aid and things from Turkey are bound by a UN uh, Security Council resolution uh, which controls what can or how often things can come across Um, and there is some controversy over that because Russia has a veto power on on whether or not things can uh, or those deliveries can be made. So the rebuilding process will be extremely slow in Syria as well and this is already on top of 12 years of war that has destroyed the infrastructure, left people living. People have moved 10 or 12 times already. Those people who are living in the earthquake-affected areas of Syria in poor accommodation as it is. Uh, And now they've been displaced again by the earthquakes and living in tents and things. So it's it's a really, really dire humanitarian situation that we can kind of just forget is, is happening alongside diplomatic shifts to try and bring Assad back on side with, with Arab countries. Um, and as you mentioned there, he's also visiting, uh, he's doing diplomatic visits more frequently than he has done at previous times in the conflict. Yeah. And so as you say, this, this moment of the earthquake was uh, a kind of created a great humanitarian crisis but it also raised these these diplomatic questions and there has been this this kind of rapprochement of um Assad with with Arab nations and you you talk about that in the piece about the about what happened in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake can you tell us a bit more about that um and also what came before it that that kind of led to that point countries including the UAE had already since sort of the past couple of years, had been rebuilding uh, diplomatic ties with Damascus, uh, opening diplomatic missions uh, in the Syrian capital. Some people describe that as like the UAE doing a sort of scouting job for 
the rest of the Arab countries, because this is also part of a bigger policy by countries like the UAE to have better relationships with countries that are closer by, countries that are potentially useful for food security and for combating things like the drugs trade, which uh, Syria is a significant um, part of uh, Captagon trade, the trade of Captagon. Can you just explain what Captagon is? For those, some people may not know what Captagon is. It's a um, manufactured, it's a manufactured drug um, that is a stimulant uh, that is widely used across the Middle East. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a, a, a sort of, I mean, you might liken it to kind of ecstasy or something like that, um, but it's much uh cheaper than some other drugs that people would otherwise use so in the trade of it is massive through um through syria i mean there's there's networks all over iraq is also extremely concerned about it um and uh, usage in the gulf countries is high so these countries were motivated by their own security concerns their own foreign policy objectives to have better relationships with countries in the region and by uh, combating drugs trafficking, essentially. They also see that the approach that the West has taken hasn't changed anything in terms of how Syria is functioning. So they are seeing, well, let's try something else. And it's it's a bit of experiment, they say. Jordan as well um, has a land border with Syria. They've been hosting hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees for a decade now. And they see the need to engage with Assad to try and get some people to go home. Um, Now, whether that's going to be possible, maintaining those people's safety and dignity is another question. And and trade, of course. Um, You've got a land border. And prior to the conflict, there were, you know, significant trade of fast-moving consumable goods, other things across the uh, the land border between Jordan and Syria. So there are kind of trade and economic motivations for this as well. Jordan has been re-engaging Assad. And then after the earthquake, and you know, there'd been a sort of um, gradual process to to try and bring him back in afterwards as well. Yeah. And so, and so in the immediate aftermath, you talk in the piece about them, about the Gulf nations sending aid to to areas of Syria controlled by the government and also um, by the other groups who kind of, you know, contest for power in Syria. So, which which was something new, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in that, we, you know, you, you having Saudi and Emirati aid planes landing in Damascus and Aleppo, as well as going across the border from Turkey was a big thing. And it was a very material sort of example. And from the Syrian, you know, from Assad's side, it was, uh, you know, he can show the pictures and say, look, and this was reported by Syrian state media, you know, it was on Sana, which is the Syrian state media, showing, look, the Saudis and the Emiratis are working with us again. So they are being legitimized through that as well. Um, so yes, there was aid packages and, and, and trips, sorry, as well, diplomatic trips, uh, meeting between, I think, Emirati officials uh, and Assad and then and Saudi officials as well. I mean, not that long ago, that that might have been unthinkable. The After the conflict in Syria began, Assad was kind of became pariah internationally for his government's actions and the, you know, the violence towards the Syrian people. The initial response was was quite a hard line. There were sanctions imposed by Western states uh, on Syria. So, can you tell us about where those sanctions sit now? 
have they had an impact? Are they still an important part of the story? What role do they have? Sanctions are definitely um, limiting the ability of Syria, you know, the, the Syrian government to act to to uh, or of actors close to the Syrian government to interact with the West or for Western companies to go into Syria or even companies like, I mean, it will be an issue in terms of whether Gulf countries are now on Gulf companies are willing to go back and work in Syria because they will also not want to be exposed to the sort of um, punishments or, or, or fines that would be associated with violating US sanctions. Um, the US sanctions are the big one, really. So sanctions will be a barrier to some investment in, in Syria from Gulf countries. I mean, there's a lot of controversy about whether sanctions should be imposed because the fact that there are sanctions means that lots of Syrians within Syria are suffering. You know, it's not possible to do business there. But there are also, I mean, lots of economists and things I speak to, they argue that sanctions are not the biggest problem in the Syrian economy. The biggest problems are corruption, mafia-like business networks, brain drain, huge loss of infrastructure. I mean, the country's been at war for 12 years. So things like, you know, water pumping stations, electricity network, uh, roads, the basic infrastructure is badly damaged. And that means that uh, that's a, just as big a barrier to trade as uh, Western sanctions. But they, they, they definitely are. I mean, um, just in terms of Syrians being able to send money to their families and things. I know I've got Syrian friends in I- Iraq who find it very difficult to um, move money around, you know, for very, very legitimate purposes because they are Syrian. Um, and there's almost like a, a ripple effect from sanctions, like a sort of overcompliance with sanctions that means that anything to do with Syria is is completely rejected by Western financial institutions that makes things hard for normal Syrians who just want to get on with their lives as well as uh, as well as other people, as well as the people who they're supposed to be targeting. After the break, we'll talk more about how Assad has been brought back into the fold. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. If, I mean, if we bring this forward to this week and Assad's trip to China, sanctions do seem to have been a big part of that. What, what do you think Assad will have been talking about in relation to sanctions in China? What's, what's his aim there? I think for both sides, it's a legitimising exercise. It's, look, we're able, we have other countries, you know, some of the biggest world powers are interested in speaking to us as the government. We are the legitimate rulers of Syria and we have good ties with the world's biggest powers. It's also part of creating this kind of anti-Western axis um, or strengthening the axis that has been around for a long time. Uh, So China, Iran, Syria, Russia. So I think for Assad, he wants to show himself up on the global stage and, and show that he's back not only with the Arab countries, not only with his traditional allies, Russia and Iran, but also with the, the world's one of the world's uh, biggest economies. I think 
We know that sanctions that are imposed by the West aren't necessarily applied in China or, or followed by China. It's not necessarily going to prevent trade with China because there are sanctions uh, imposed by the EU or the US. However, I don't necessarily think that China is looking for uh, to Syria as a kind of you know, this is going to be a huge money maker for Chinese companies and rushing in to, to make money in Syria. I think they know that the the damage to the infrastructure, the brain drain are huge barriers to making any money in Syria. Also, many of the biggest opportunities, so ownership and of, of the ports and uh, minerals are already tied up with the Russian and Iranian companies because Iran's given lines of credit and Russia has long-term contracts for the ports in Tartus and Lazaire. So I don't necessarily think China is thinking of Syria as like a huge moneymaker. Again, it's more for them being we're not just about you know, Chinese companies making lots of money um, in developing nations. It's we are a diplomatic heavyweight across the Middle East, uh, as well as a uh, economic one. They've been uh, flexing their diplomatic muscle in recent months by being the broker behind a big diplomatic or, or resumption of diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran that was brokered by Beijing. They've been talking to, to the Saudis a lot, um, summits in Riyadh in, in recent months and showing how the China-Saudi Arabia relationship is extremely important as Saudi moves away from the US. So I think they're not necessarily going to be brokering things with serial, you never say never, but Assad going to see um, Xi Jinping and senior Chinese officials is a kind of sign that China is very, very aware of what's, go what's going on in Syria and following it. And they are willing to speak to Assad when maybe many other countries are still refusing to speak to him and they can form one joint in a, in a, um, in a strengthened kind of anti-Western axis. You also spoke to Russian sources in the course of your reporting um, about that Russian involvement in Syria that, as you say, also you know dates back quite some years now. What did they tell you? The way Russia sees Syria is very different from how we see it in the West. They see that there were security threats, um, ISIS. They, you know, they have problems with Salafi extremism in some parts of Russia, you know, and also Assad has been a partner, I think, for them. They described him as a partner and then he became an ally, you know, a full-on ally when they realised that, or, or when it was kind of convenient for Russia to go into Syria more full-on and to put boots on the ground in Syria. They say that, you know, they never had the intention of kind of setting up against NATO in the Eastern Mediterranean by taking control of ports. But the fact that they do now, well, it's it's good for them. And they're not going to, you know, give up on those gains that they've made uh, in the Eastern Med. But that wasn't what they were thinking about doing. But, I mean, that's what they say. They, they say that they weren't necessarily going into Syria to get a footing in on, on the Eastern Med, but that they saw 
Assad as the best partner against what they see as threats of extremism emanating from from Syria. And it's it's very interesting to see the kind of different lens through which which they view things um, and justify their military operations in in Syria. And, and lots of Syrians now say that there's a you know link with Ukraine in that equipment and tactics that were used in Syria or tested in Syria are now being used in Ukraine, and that you know Russia will try and use Syria as as a kind of it has leverage over the West in Syria in some senses in that it can it has a, a veto vote on the UN Security Council so it can veto things when it feels kind of put into a corner it can veto things like aid distributions into Syria um, that are governed by a UN Security Council mechanism so Syria kind of is is very much one part of larger things that you know like. Uh, Ukraine, which is a, a bigger game for Russia now. Yeah, there's this line in your piece where you say that what happens next in Syria depends not on Syrians, but on policymaking in, in Ankara, Washington, Moscow. I thought that's a really important part of your reporting that you you then tie that back to the Syrian people who you met and and their kind of hopes and fears about the future. Or what would you say their perspective is on now these kind of emerging powers, world powers circling Syria and, you know, all having a stake in what happens there? I think they feel angry. And I mean, a lot of Syrians I know feel angry and let down by countries that they thought were kind of had more of their interests in mind. Um, They feel that uh, Gulf countries were kind of, you know, would protect them against Assad and and they haven't because now they are welcoming him back and they I think they they realize now that it's been a long time and that I think a lot of people are coming to this kind of cold realization that things aren't in their hands and the decisions don't place them at the center of things and and countries have their policies or, or their strategic obje- objectives, I'd, I'd say. And while there is, you know, on paper, sometimes it's written that, you know, safety and guarantee the dignity and security of the Syrian people, in actual fact, that's not happening. You know, you've got refugee returns from, from Lebanon, lots of talk in Turkey. The opposition party here particularly it comes into domestic Turkish politics, the opposition party in Turkey. One of the slogans uh, before the election that Recep Tayyip Erdogan won in May was Syrians need to get out. Syrians get out. Go home. Even people who are very, you know, liberal minded and things, they think that Syrians just need to go home without really understanding the the risks involved. And there's 3.3 million Syrians in, in Turkey. Many people believe there's many more, but I mean, these are the numbers. You know, and that's a a policy point that you know involves Ankara and and then who boots on the ground you've got Washington Ankara Moscow Tehran you know they've all got much more powerful diplomacy and forces than than Syria has itself arguably and that's not to say that like poor Syrian government, you know, they're being overwhelmed by these people, but it definitely complicates everything um, because in diplomacy, Syrian government says, 
we won't we won't re- renormalize with Turkey until they leave. Turkey doesn't want to leave because of its own. Turkey has troops in in northern Syria, and um, you know they have fears about their own national security if they leave. You know, Russia and Tehran have their own interests um, uh, strategically keeping a hold on Syria. So it really feels that it's out of people's hands. And um, I think Fadi, the, the, the man I interviewed who lost 13 members of his family in the earthquake, he, you know, he, I could tell when he's, you know, in his, what he said to me, it's like he is feeling disgusted by these countries and disappointed and let down that, no one is really prioritizing Syrians, whether they're inside Syria or outside Syria. Millions and millions of people have left the country. Million and millions of people are internally displaced within the country. And the kind of policy, foreign policy objectives that are being highlighted in, in the normalization process between many countries and Syria is... There's nothing guaranteeing these people's safety. There's Yes, there's talk about we need to ensure Syrians' dignity and things, but how do you do that um, when 70% of the country is, is ruled by a government that a lot of people don't trust and uh, there is you know, widespread instability elsewhere, widespread poverty, economic collapse? You know, more people need aid now in Syria than any other time in the conflict. I think that's a really striking, and that's according to the UN, that's... I think that's a really striking statistic or, or, or um, statement because while the level of violence has decreased, people's living conditions are horrific. But, but there's not anything to make that better in any of the concluding statements or anything in any of the words about dignity of the Syrian people, etc. But actually enforcing that or, or, or enabling that is is a different thing. I guess one one final point picking up there on the as you say the ongoing you know more than challenges you know horrors that many Syrians are experiencing it's why we need to keep telling the stories of of Syrians in this context where do you think your reporting goes next on Syria are there other stories that you want to to look into and that you're hoping to tell I'd like to look more at the northwest uh this enclave that's um it's there are forces that are backed by Turkey there, and there are Turkish, um, you know, the trade across the border there. Um, but there's a sort of complicated dynamic, um, you know, whether, um, you know, how long does Turkey stay there? Uh, what happens if Turkey doesn't stay there? I think that's really interesting, and and of course. In some areas there, um, you know, there are more extremist, um, you know, Al Qaeda affiliates um, uh, that sort of prevent that, that it prevents wider engagement essentially with with that area. I think also the wider mental health, and you know, there are many Syrians now in Turkey and Europe um, who are getting on with their lives, but live with extreme, extreme trauma. There's missing persons, prisoners, missing people live with this kind of huge long-term PTSD. And, and, and what, you know, what does that mean for, for people? I, I was interviewing, actually, it was a interview I did as part of this, although I didn't include it in the story in the end. It was a, uh, a man in, in Gaziantep who, was in prison for three years and comes out and is now, you know, he lives like many Syrians and Turks in quite difficult economic circumstances because of the economic hardships in Turkey. 
and he's you know he really struggles struggles mentally um with his with with where he's at rising racism towards syrians as well in in countries surrounding as well is also an important issue that i'd like to keep um keep looking at well thank you lizzie for joining us and for telling us all about your reporting um it is a fascinating piece to read so if anyone who's listening would like to read lizzie's reporting in full then do head to our website prospectmagazine.co.uk or grab a copy of our latest issue where you can also read Matthew Dancona on how centrism became a bad joke, Barry Eichengreen on whether globalisation is really over, and Samira Shackle's profile of the iconic documentary maker Norma Percy. But that's all for today, so thanks very much for joining. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.